And uh, for you older folks, we're not going to go through Daniel like we normally do. Let's have you come to the Gospel of John, please. Chapter 10. John chapter 10. And verse number 9. I'm going to, by the grace of God, take you through several scriptures. John chapter 10 and verse 9. Let me just make sure. I'm not hearing myself. Are you hearing me okay? Is it coming through the speaker? Bottom, you can hear it all right? Good. All right, John chapter 10 and verse number 9. Jesus gives us, this is what we call a salient verse. It's one of those verses that just stands out. It's super clear, needs very little exposition. You can immediately understand what he's saying. Verse 9, I am the door. I don't know about you, myself, I, I love those uh, I am statements. Because when Jesus is saying, I am, what comes next is always profound. Every single time. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world and so forth. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And shall go in and out and find pasture. I'm not going to preach or teach this morning on the last part of the verse, although I don't want to just ignore it outright. When he says, go in and out and find pasture, there is a a rather deep prophetical meaning to that that applies to the millennial kingdom and spending time on the earth for a thousand years. There's something very deep to that. But there's also something very practical to that. This links perfectly with Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door. Now, now, if you really want a brain buster, there, I am the door, behold, I stand at the door <laughs> and knock. So, I mean, <laughs> it was one of, those, one of those jobs. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, obviously, when Jesus says, I am the door, he's using one illustration. And when he says, I stand at the door, and knock, he's not referring to himself, it's the door of a church in that case. But the, both verses end up the same. And that is going in and out, finding pasture. There's a place to go and comfortably feed, comfortably fellowship with the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down beside the still waters and in the green pastures and, and so forth. And I think that's the picture he's, he's getting. Come in, I am the entrance Right? I, I am that way to the Father. And once you come in, you're saved. But not only saved, you're going to go from this pasture to that pasture and find what you need to strengthen you and to keep you going through life. So that's the overall teaching here. But I'm going to focus our attention on the first phrase, I am the door. And I'd like to give you, call it what you will, a lesson or a sermon this morning. It's called, It All Hinges on the Cross. It all hinges on the cross. So a door, as Jesus has used in this verse as an illustration, it is useless unless there are a couple other things with it. In order to be useful, a door needs to be hung. Isn't this right? A door sitting against a wall somewhere, we know it's a door, but it is, no, it is of no use at this point. A door must be hung. And we read in Galatians chapter 3, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. And that is precisely what happened to Jesus when they nailed Him to that cross, that old wooden cross. They were hanging Him on that tree using those 
three nails. So the door becomes very useful once it's hung. But let me say this as well. A door, if it is to be of use, needs to be on hinges. Right? Otherwise, it's a lid. Does that make sense? If you, if you put a door on something and nail it shut, you might refer to it as a door, but it's not reaching its full capacity as far as use. You're not going get to get, get as much use of that door as maybe the door was intended for. It needs hinges so that it can open and so that it can close. And it just so happens there at the cross, there were three nails, and usually it's a bit ironic. You would think, well, if it's nails, then it's nailed shut. There's no hinge. But that's just what Jesus does. He, he takes things that we wouldn't think would work. He can make them work. With men, this is impossible, not with God. With God, all things are possible. They tried to nail the coffin shut, so to speak, right? They tried to seal the tomb and keep them in. They tried. Now, it's very common. It's, I don't know if they practiced it any more anywhere in the world, but it was very common for some time, for centuries, to nail a coffin shut upon burial. Now, there were various reasons for that, more, more than anything to prevent grave robbing. That was the big reason. But you'd nail the coffin shut at the end of the funeral, lower the casket into the ground, and then done. Well, they tried to seal Jesus in. Didn't work. They tried to nail him to a cross to try to finish him off. What they didn't realize is they were providing not nails, but hinges. Those nails that hung him there on the cross actually opened a way for something else to happen. So I'm going to play with that term a little bit, if you don't mind me saying it that way. I'm going to play with that term of opening and shutting the door. You remember what Jesus said in Revelation 3. He has the key of David. He opens a door, no man can shut it. He shuts a door, no man can open it. So this door, it has been hung, and it has hinges, which means certain things open, certain things close, and it all hinges on the cross. All right, so come to Hebrews chapter 9. And let's take a look now at how that might, what might have opened and what closed there at the cross. Hebrews chapter 9. So some of this maybe will feel like preaching, some of this like teaching. Either way, I hope that it's edifying. Hebrews 9 and verse number 15. So with this door hung on hinges, first thing I want to say is, is there was something open that got closed at the cross. Everything hinges on the cross. So there was something open. We refer to it as the Old Testament. It was open. It was viable. The people were bound to keep it, right? It was a binding contract, if you will, on the nation of Israel, not on the world. The law was given to the nation of Israel, but it was an open binding contract until Jesus was nailed to that cross. And those hinges, air quotes, put in, now something got closed. Hebrews 9, verse 15. And for this cause, He, speaking about Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament. So He brought this new deal in. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, we call that the Old, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And that is to say the people in the Old Testament, they were waiting Right? For someone to come and remove their sins. And that allowed them to receive this eternal inheritance. Verse 16, for, a, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. 
Jesus, the night of the Last Supper, when he took the cup, he said, this is the cup, and, and it's, it's, it has the blood. He's talking about his blood being shed, and it's, forgive me, the wording is slipping my mind, for the New Testament, for the remission of sins. But this is the cup of the New Testament. So that blood, when it was shed, that New Testament begins. And what happens is the door on the Old Testament, to use that term, is closed. It all hinges on the cross. Jesus, when he started to preach, one of the first things he made clear is, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Now, people, I, I think, sometimes get a little confused on that phrasing. And they say, well, what Jesus meant is he came to keep the law. And, and let's be clear, he did keep the law. He was a good Jew. That is, he, mind, he was very mindful of Moses' law, and he did keep it. He never broke any of the laws. But that is not what Jesus said. When he said, I came to fulfill it, the law had a temporary purpose. God never intended for that law to be an eternal thing binding on all of mankind. When Jesus showed up, he was the fulfillment of the law. The purpose of the law was to keep the people of Israel in line and walking with God until the Messiah shows up and gives them a deeper understanding of walking with God. Pays for their sins, uh, sins brings them closer to the Lord. Uh, you can hold your place in Hebrews to get Romans chapter 10. So Jesus, in other places, right, he fulfills the law. We also read, as you're going to see here, he's the end of the law. In Colossians 2, he blotted out the law, the, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, all those Jewish customs and rituals that made them a peculiar people. That was, in Ephesians 2, abolished. That's another word that's used. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the Old Testament being abolished. That is, it's, it's brought to a close. That's what that word means. It's brought to a close. So everything hinged on the cross. And as soon as Jesus dies, the door on the Old Testament Scripture is now closed. That, let me be careful. The door on the Old Testament laws for the Jews is now closed. Romans 10, get verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, Paul is specifically talking about Israel here. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What's the problem? They were trying to make themselves righteous by keeping the law. Now, in the Old Testament, before Jesus dies, that's the right thing to do because that's as much that, as God had revealed up until that time. So you have to walk with the light God has provided. And that's all they knew, so that's fine. But once Jesus comes in, now you have something greater than the law. He says in verse number four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So there's still a purpose for the law. We can still use it. The Bible says in Galatians chapter three, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The purpose of the law is to show you that your righteousness is not enough. To show you that you have fallen short and that you need a Savior. Christ then, notice the wording, is the end of the law for righteousness. So for, when we're talking about making you righteous, the law has come to an end. And now Jesus is here. It all hinged on the cross. So now that purpose of the Old Testament is now closed. When we talk about God revealing himself, you look in the Old Testament, how did he do that? Well, there are dreams, there are visions prophecies, but the greatest revelation of himself was through the law. 
because it revealed his character. It showed you what kind of a God he was over and over again. Here are the things that I care about, that are important to me. And that's why the Jews would study so greatly and deeply into their law. But once Jesus comes, Hebrews chapter 1 says, Jesus was the express image of God's person. So God, when He sent His Son, says, you want to know about me? The law would would get you so far, but Jesus shows up and says, now if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So now we don't, the law is helpful and useful in certain ways, but nothing compared to Christ. He closed the book, if you will, on that, on that part of it. Uh, let me just run you through this list quickly, not take time to look at all of the verses because there are so many. When Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, all right, we're looking through the Old Testament at both prophecies and pictures. And the Jews did not even realize that these things applied to the Messiah while they were reading it, but now we know it. The very first prophecy in the Bible, do you know where it's at? It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It talks about the seed of the woman bruising the serpent's head. Jesus fulfilled that. God killing an animal to cover Adam and Eve for their sins. That was a picture of Jesus dying to cover our sins. Abel's lamb that was offered, the acceptable sacrifice, a picture of Jesus Christ. Noah's ark, a picture of Jesus Christ. If you want to make it through all the troubles and tribulation of life, you get in the ark. Abraham's seed, God said, I will use your seed to bless the world. And we know now that that seed was a particular person. That seed was Christ. Isaac was commanded to be sacrificed by Abraham. And Abraham knew, even if I do take him up there and kill him, God will raise him up. And the the book of Hebrews says he received him in a figure. Isaac became a picture of Christ. Joseph was rejected by his brethren. When he first tried to reveal himself, he was rejected by his brethren. But upon his second attempt to reveal himself, his brethren received him. Exactly what happened with the Jews. Jesus came unto his own. His own received him not. But when he comes again and tries the second time, they will receive him. Joseph is one of the greatest pictures of Jesus in the Bible. Genesis 49, you read about Judah. The the tribe of Judah, the scepter will not depart. They will rule over Israel. And they did. Starting with David on down, there was kings of Judah. And it says in Genesis 49, until Shiloh come. And Jesus is that Shiloh. The the word means peaceful one. Then you step, that just gets us through Genesis. We we got 38 more books to go. And I'm giving you just a real quick overview. There's probably 20 things I didn't mention. Moses steps up. You know what he says? Guys, why are we fighting amongst ourselves? What did the Jews say? Who made you a judge or a deliverer over us? They rejected Moses upon his first attempt to save them. But when God called him that second time by the burning bush and said, go get him, then they took him as their deliverer. He immediately becomes a picture of Jesus Christ. We step into Exodus chapter 12 with the Passover lamb, the perfect picture of Jesus Christ without blemish. There he is, sacrificed for us. Then we read further in the book of Exodus, Moses takes a rod and smacks it. He takes that rod and hits the rock and the water comes out. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of Christ. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. So when the the rock was struck, the water comes out. When Jesus is nailed to the cross, the water of life flows out. That's the picture you have. We read further, the Jews needed evidence that Aaron was the true high priest and not some other 
Levite. He says, give me the rods, give me a branch of a tree. And they all put it in the tabernacle overnight. They come out the next day and Aaron's rod had budded. It's a picture of getting life from something that was dead. It's a picture of the resurrection. You see Jesus in Aaron's almond branch. There's a brazen serpent put on a pole. Even Jesus himself would later say, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus is giving us this information to say, look back in the Old Testament and you'll see me throughout it. And if you notice those things when you read the Gospels, if you've been reading your Old Testament, you'll start to see where Jesus fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled over and over again. Stepping further now, just for the sake of time, in Psalm 22, we read the fantastic set of prophecies there where he said that his hands and his feet would be pierced. This was written in 1000 BC before crucifixion was a thing. That method of dying was unheard of at that time. Crucifixion didn't become a thing for about seven, eight hundred years. And yet it predicted how Jesus would die. In that same chapter, you read about how his garments would be parted and his vesture, they would cast lots for it. Which is, that's exactly what happened when Jesus died there on that cross. That chapter starts off by saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Immediately we are pointed, you and I, you and I know that's what Jesus prayed when he was on the cross, Yes? So a Jew in 1000 B.C. wouldn't have known, oh, that's Jesus. How could he have known? But you and I, because the fulfillment of it has happened, we, we now think of it like this. He's fulfilled it, so the door is closed. That purpose of the Old Testament finished, door is closed, and at the same time, a door is open. Because now there, there's a brand new way to read and understand the Old Testament. Jesus' death has opened up the New Testament in a, I'm sorry, the Old Testament in a way unheard of, unthought of. And at the same time, he fulfilled it and closed it and said, okay, that part's done, New Testament now. <laughs> it all hinges on the cross. You read further in Psalm, well, a little bit behind, actually, in Psalm 16, it talks about how Jesus, the Messiah, his flesh would not see corruption, and it didn't. He rose again the third day. You go into the book of Isaiah, and oh, if time would allow it, Isaiah 50 talks about he gave his back to the smiters. He gave his, his cheek. They ripped his beard out. That's Isaiah 50, and that's what they did when he was going to the cross. He didn't hide his face from shame and spitting. That's what happened when he hung on the cross. Isaiah 52 says his visage, his face, was marred more than any man. His form more than the sons of men. You could not recognize him as a man by the time they got done beating on our Savior. In Isaiah 53, over and over, that chapter, one of the classic chapters for the Messiah. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. For the Lord hath laid on him all, our, all of our iniquities. Laid on him. All we like sheep had gone astray. And yet the Messiah did that for us. In Isaiah 53, it says he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. What are the odds of that happening? If you, if you read Isaiah 53, it says he was rejected of men. He was not going to be a popular figure. So why would you then say, if he's so rejected, to say, okay, he's going to get the tomb of a rich man? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense if you are just making up the story. You wouldn't say he's going to be very unpopular and disliked and rejected and then have this honorable burial. That doesn't fit unless you're God and you know the whole story. 
And that's exactly how Jesus was buried. Time would fail to talk about how the tabernacle and the temple all give us a detailed picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. How every offering and sacrifice the Jews gave, every one of them in one way or another, is a picture of Jesus Christ. All seven feasts that the Jews were told and commanded to carry out every year, every one of them connected to Jesus Christ in one way or another. You get towards the end of the Old Testament, you read about Zechariah prophesying that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, but those, those pieces of silver would be cast into the potter's house, which is exactly what Judas did. Over and over, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and the pictures. Come to second, hold, hold Hebrews, if you haven't dropped it already, forgive me, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians three. Let's get verse number seven. Second Corinthians three, verse seven. It says here, but if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious. Now what does he mean the ministration of death? That's the law. Why would it, why would it be called the ministration or the ministry of death? Because if you give somebody a law. He's going to break it, right? That, that's the story. That's the testimony of mankind. You know, if, if somebody says, you can have the tree, you can eat from any tree in the garden, thousands of trees, but there's one tree. Don't eat from that. What's mankind going to do? Go right to that tree and eat from that. That's just how we are, right? So when God gives 613 laws, oh, he's just setting them up for death, right? He's setting them up. But, but why? He's saying, guys, here's the structure. Here's my nature. I want you to see that you need a Savior. So he says that if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, there's your Ten Commandments, was glorious, it was, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance. You guys remember that story, his face shining? Which glory was to be what? Done away. Paul is using... Moses compared to Christ to stand for the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And that Old Testament was to be done away. Verse 8, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit, that's the New Testament, be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation, that's under the law, be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. Old Testament, break a law, condemned. Break a law, condemned. Break a law, punished. Break a law, punished. In the New Testament, what do we have? You've broken the law. Jesus got punished. Now accept him as your savior and he'll wipe your record clean. That's the ministration of righteousness. Verse 10, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. He said the Old Testament was glorious. God gave it. There was no fault in the Old Testament. The fault was the people trying to keep it. So the Old Testament was fine, and it had glory, but when the New Testament comes in with Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, it shines so bright you couldn't even see this other thing shining. That's what he's getting at. Verse 11, for if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Verse 12, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. 
Look at there. The door on the Old Testament was shut. It all hinged on the cross. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. And we're going to talk about that veil just now. Verse 15, but even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, that is their heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. How do we get freedom and access to all the glories of God's revealed words? Verse 17, now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It's not the ministry of death, but of life now. What does the Spirit hope to do? Verse 18, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass... The glory of the Lord. When you open your Bible, in James chapter 1, it's like a mirror. You look into it. You know what you're going to see in this book? In this looking glass? You're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ on every page. Watch what he, how he frames this now. He says, you'll see as in a glass, and you're changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. How does the Lord work? The Spirit of the Lord. He gets you to open your Bible. And then He shows you the glory of a man. And then He shows you the glory of Christ. And He gets you to go from one to the other. He shows you the purpose and the reason for the Old Testament and how glorious it was. And then He shows you the glory of the New Testament and how Jesus fulfilled it. And in one way, shut the door and abolish the Old Testament. And in another way, opened the door in the Old Testament so you could see every treasure buried beneath the surface. It all hinges on the cross. Everything changed there. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's come to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 and verse number 6. Alright, so it all hinges on the cross and something opened and something closed and that was the Old Testament it opened and closed at the same time but there's something else that Jesus opened when he was on that cross and I'm gonna say it's it's the best way I know to explain it a new depth of reconciliation and relationship with God right that's a mouthful but let me tell you why let me show you now why I say that in Hebrews 9 verse 6 says, now when these things were thus ordained, he's talking about the tabernacle being set up, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. All right, are you guys familiar with the tabernacle set up? There were two rooms, if you will. All right, so there's a, let's call it a big curtain around this, this structure. And you enter into the first chamber, the Irste Kamerdar, and you have the showbread, you have the, what we call a menorah or the candlestick, and then you have the altar of incense. That's that first tabernacle. And the priests were allowed to enter into there. But the second, there was another veil. And to enter into that second chamber, only one day in the year was somebody allowed to enter in. That was where the Ark of the Covenant was held. And that's where the manifested presence of God would, would appear. Only one time a year. On the Day of Atonement could the high priest enter in, and he had to be properly done. I mean, he had to have blood and, and uh, oil anointed on certain parts of his body, and his ear, and his thumb, and his toe, and then he had to have the right garments on. It was a very, very hectic time. Verse 7, 
But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, because he was a sinner, and for the heirs of the people. This signifies, watch in verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying. Do you see how this links up to 2 Corinthians 3? When you read your Bible, the Holy Spirit will begin to show you and teach you, even from lessons in the backside of Exodus, about the tabernacle, how you can get closer to God. How you can get a deeper relationship and understand reconciliation with God in a deeper way. Verse 8, the Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. That Old Testament had an expiration date. When Jesus showed up to reform everything, then he fulfilled it. And the door was closed on that. Verse 11, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, not, not on earth, mind you, but up in heaven, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Look at chapter 10, verse 19. So here's what we learn from that Old Testament story. One time in the year, only the high priest could enter into the presence of God. Guys, one time a year, one man in the whole nation. Now, you know what Jesus did when he died on that cross? You know what happened? He's hanging there on the cross. The veil of the temple was rent in twain. That curtain that covered the manifested presence of Jehovah, that thing was ripped open from top to bottom. And that thing was thick. That was, it was as thick as my hand is wide here. That's how thick the curtain was. Not this, this. It was ripped from top to bottom. You know what God was showing? My presence is no longer found in this tabernacle. Now that Jesus has died, He has reformed things. Things have changed. It all hinges on the cross. Everything changed there. No longer, if you want to find me, do you go down to a tabernacle and look for my presence over by the Ark of the Covenant. That's not, you're not going to find me there. Where do you find him? I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It all hinges on the cross. A new way to God was opened up. A much deeper way. A much more satisfying way. Hebrews 10, look at verse 19. So no longer is it just one man once a year, but now all of us. In verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the what? Holiest. All the way into where God manifests His presence. How special do you think it was for Aaron and then subsequently all of his sons to be the one person once a year to walk into that room and see the presence of God on the mercy seat? What, what an incredible honor, right? I mean, if that was you, you'd fear and tremble. You'd count that as a great honor and privilege, right? We have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. It all hinges on the cross. Verse 20, by a, by a new and living way. It's ironic. He creates a living way to God by dying. <laughs> 
by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So when that veil of the temple is rent in twain, you know when it happened? When, when the veil of Jesus' flesh was rent. There's, there's actually much more to that. We're going to leave that aside for now, but let's just keep moving in verse 21. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's, what's the idea here? We're not just cleansed on the outside. We're also cleansed on the inside. We, in the Old Testament... They didn't have the blood of Christ. They didn't have the death, burial, and resurrection to constantly look to and to take as an example. They, they knew that God loved them because God brought them out of Egypt. God had His hand upon His nation, right? But they did not have the greatest manifestation of love the world had ever seen in Jesus dying for their sins. They didn't know that yet. So here's my point. When we talk about a deeper relationship a, a deeper sense of reconciliation. You read in the Old Testament how those animals being sacrificed would reconcile a sinner to God, but never could those animal sacrifices take the sins away. That's why they had to keep giving them. Because never could one animal or ten animals or a hundred animals finish the sin. It was always there. Their conscience always reminded, hey, hey you still got some sins to pay for. Somebody's got to pay for this. And then when Jesus shows up, He is the payment. The Bible calls Him the propitiation for our sins. So think of it like this, guys. How close did some people in the Old Testament get to God? How did they walk with the Lord? Did they have good relationships with Him? Were they, were they right with God, if I can use the phrase loosely? Were they right with Him? Well, sure they were. Enoch walked with God. Even God Himself gave us a list, actually. Did you know this in the book of Jeremiah? He says, even if Noah, Daniel, or Job were here, I wouldn't even excuse them. Or, I'm sorry, in that case, forgive me. He said, I would excuse them, and I wouldn't excuse the rest. There's another place where he says, even if Moses or Samuel prayed, I wouldn't even listen at this point. So God gives us lists of various men. David, a man after mine own heart. Did these men have walks with God? Yes, but we have something they didn't. We have a boldness to enter into the holiest. We, all of us, you don't have to be the high priest. You don't have to be the pastor. You don't have to be in the full-time ministry. You can be a carpenter. You can be a businessman. You can be a housewife. You can be a secretary. You can be any. It doesn't matter. All of that doesn't matter whether you're a slave, whether you're the master. Whether you're African or American or South Africa or China. It doesn't matter. None of that matters now. Every single one of us have access into that holiest of holies. We have something. Look, chapter 11, all of these people walk with God, yes? We call it the hall of faith. Imagine trying to compare ourselves with Abraham and Moses and Enoch and these men that were moved by faith to do these great things. And chapter 12 says this, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So the stories of chapter 11, commendable, yes? It gives us something to aim for, right? 
We have an example. They walked with God. How? Because God told them what to do. Right? It's that simple. God said do this and they did it by faith. They did it because God said it. That's what faith is. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. God said it. They did it. And they loved God deeply. Make no mistake. Now he says, seeing you have all these examples, we should also run our race with patience. How? There's no full stop at the end of verse 1. Look at verse 2. We have something they didn't. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He not only told us what to do, he ran the whole race all the way to the end. He, he not only came down and said, you want to know God better and deeper than ever before? I'm not just going to hand you a new set of laws. I'm going to let you spend time with me. I'm going to let you watch every move I make. I'm going to let you handle me, the Bible says. That new and living way and all the way to the cross, he says, I'm going to open up my heart to you now. Which, by the way, this is one of the most courageous things you can do as a human being is to open your heart to another human being and tell them, this is how much I love you. That is one of the scariest things you'll ever do. You know why? As soon as you do that, that other person now has a lot of power to hurt you. Because once you've told them, this is how much you mean to me, whew, what do they do with that information? Now that they know, they are expected to act accordingly. As long as you keep that closed up, well, how would they know how special you are? As soon as God opens his heart and says, let me show you just how much you mean to me. Well, you've seen the old illustration, how much do you love me, Lord? And he opens up his arms and they nail him to the ground. This much, you know. He, he has now revealed his heart to you. This is how close I want every single person to be. You don't have to be the high priest. The high priest laid down his life for you to make a way to God so that you can have a deeper relationship than anybody you read about in the Old Testament. Because it's not just, oh, Jesus said it, I'm going to do it. Jesus said it, then he did it. He gave us the example and he says, now you go run the race just like I did. The author and finisher of our faith. Watch this. He told us how to live. He lived up to it. Then he finished the race. You know what he did after that? He rose again and he comes back down in the form of the Holy Spirit. And he says, all right, let's run. Come on, let's go together. And he, he's going to help you finish the race. And you finish the race. And you finish the author and finisher of our faith. Not just his. He gave it to us. It's a mutual faith. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He says, I'm in this with you. We're going to run this race together. Not one person in the Old Testament had that privilege. What a privilege, guys. And to be honest, it scares me to think about this. And I'll tell you why. If Daniel, Job, Moses, David, if they could walk with God, love God the way that they did, and I have a much better opportunity to love God, to know God because of Jesus coming, God, what does He expect of me? Boy, I better get close to Him because I, when I stand there at the judgment seat of Christ and He says, listen, you could have had this much of a relationship. I want to take advantage of that new and living way that opened up when Jesus died on the cross. One last thing in Hebrews chapter 2. We'll just finish up with this thought. Hebrews chapter 2. Have you guys ever seen on a game show where they have three mystery doors? 
you know, it'd be three or five or seven, but usually I've seen it, you know, three mystery doors and they'll tell the contestant, okay, because you've won so many things. Now you have, you can choose a mystery prize, choose door number one, door number two, door number three. You know, what would be really good is if they'd let you peek behind the doors, right? But then it's not a game show. I mean, who, who, that's not very exciting. Obviously he's going to look and then make an obvious choice. Part of the game, part of the fun is not knowing what's on the other side of the door. But guys, it all hinges on the cross. It's not a mystery. It's not a game show with God. You know what God did? He just hung one door. And then when he opened it, he said, I'm going to show you what's on the other side. And it's not just death and the grave. That door swung wide open. He says, there's life waiting for you. Life everlasting on the other side. Death doesn't have any more power. You don't need to be afraid of it anymore. I'm offering you eternal life and it starts now you don't have to wait till you die and go to heaven it starts right now listen to this because jesus died a sinless death it guaranteed the resurrection and when jesus rises up you know what he does you have a man in a glorified resurrected body walking on earth with mortals in sinful bodies you know what he's trying to tell them guys you can walk with me I know that I've resurrected and, and, and he's about to go back to heaven, but he's trying to make it clear to them, among other things, guys, you can still walk with me. You now see what's on the other side of that door. God has given us a peek. He wants it to be abundantly clear. Don't choose any other door but this door. Broad is the path, right? That leads to destruction. Many there be that go in there. There's not a hundred different doors that lead to God. There's one. And God has opened the door and said, there's what's on the other side. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down on the right hand of God. That's the end of this race. I want you to see what's on the other side of the door. It all hinged on the cross. So God doesn't leave it to chance to say, just hope you get it right. Here's three doors. No, no. Here's the one door I want you to choose. Opens that up and see on the other side. The glories of heaven and an and an everlasting walk with it. I want that. Hebrews 2 verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You know what hinges on the cross? Your eternity. Your eternity hinges on the cross. Jesus said, I am the door, right? And the door was opened at Calvary. But that's useless unless you enter in. It's one thing to say, there's the door. And I know it's open. That does you no good unless you go through the door. It's one thing to know that Jesus died and people all over the world today are celebrating the fact that he died and was buried and rose again. They are looking at the door. They know that it's open. The, the, the option of eternal life, there it is. I can see it. Yes, God has shown me on the other side. I know what's going to happen. It does no good until you choose to go through that door and make it personal God told Noah, build a boat, build an ark. It did Noah no good until he got in the ark. What good is it to build the ark and then not get in the ark? What good is it for God to send his son if you don't get in his son? You know what's wonderful about that story? The Bible says the last man in was Noah. Last man in. He got the animals, his family. Noah walked in. Genesis chapter 7 verse 16, the Bible says the Lord shut them in. The Lord closed the door. And once he closed the door, there was no opening that door until it was safe and sound, ready to come out. 
You know what's so lovely about that? When you get into Christ, you are sealed by the Holy Ghost until the day of redemption. You're in Christ and, and the Holy Ghost closes the door and says, you're in. And nothing can get you out of this ark. You're safe until the storm passes by. With three nails and two pieces of wood, ironically, Jesus built a door frame. <laughs> with, with three nails and two pieces of wood, He built a door frame. And there hung the door that leads to an eternal relationship with God. And now your eternity hangs on what you do with that door. Let's all stand if you would. Please. Father, we thank You for sending the, the Lord Jesus Christ to be that door, that entrance into that deeper relationship with You. Father, we find Your book to be breathtaking. How in one moment, in one moment of history, You both opened and closed the Old Testament to us. Lord, thank You for making a way for us to enter into that holiest of all. And Lord, we thank You for showing us what's on the other side of the door. Bless the service to come and our fellowship now.